Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. As you return to your seats and others of you where you're standing, um, just want to just thank God for the uh, presence of his Holy Spirit with us um, and exactly what was needed in this moment. And also just Socrates, thanks to you, <laughs> where we are, thanks to you for just following that prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I'm sure sometimes it's like, man, how do these services get planned and put together? Um, and the, the truth is um, a lot of different people speak into that um, and we'll take the best idea from anyone because we're the body of Christ and he's the head. Um, and the Holy Spirit uh, gave a word to Socrates for, for what was needed today, and I know uh, that, that that was what was needed. So it's a beautiful thing to see the body of Christ at, at work. Um, speaking of the body of Christ, I, I want to acknowledge last week, uh, we got to hear from our sister Shiloh, and what a great word, a message she had for us. Um, I left there feeling instructed, edified, encouraged, uh, challenged. Um, and so I know Shiloh was in the first service, not sure if she's here in the second, but thank you to Shiloh. Uh, for a living example, not only a, a, a proclaimed word, but a living example of God's goodness in the midst of some of the hardest things that life has to throw to us and at us. So I, I know that based on those who came for prayer this morning, there are many of you, many of you going through hard, hard things, and I want you to know God is good. He's with you. He's for you. He loves you, um, and, and we're going we're gonna to see that today. Uh, it's also not lost on me that today is 9-11, 21 years removed from the terrorist attack on our soil. Um, any of you that are probably 27, 28 years old or older, you know exactly where you are, where you were, and, and, and you remember exactly what you felt in that moment. And I think it's just right to acknowledge the loss of life that took place both in uh, New York City, in Washington, D.C., also on the airplane that went down in Pennsylvania. Um, that left an indelible mark on our country. But the other thing that I remember about 9-11 was the aftermath. When, when the country and even the world to a degree pulled together and said, we're not going to let evil triumph. Uh, we're not going to let injustice do its part and we not do ours. And, and, and as I was thinking about that this week, the, 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 the lesson that 9-11 really taught me um, was I think the lesson of the series that we're in. That, that evil will do its worst, injustice will do its best, but ultimately there's a God in heaven who is going to come to set things right. That he is sovereign, that he sits on his throne, that he is unfazed, and that ultimately he wins in the end. I'm reminded of the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said famously, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And the only reason that that is true is because there is a God of justice who is overseeing it. In the end, it is he that wins. So with that in mind, let me dive into the message that we have for this morning. And I'm going to do a real rough transition. Bear with me. How many of you watched football yesterday? You're clapping. So your team won. How many of you wish that you didn't watch football yesterday? Okay. If you're a fan of uh, Florida or Wisconsin or Texas A&M or Notre Dame, you probably have some regrets this morning. The rest of you are like, I don't care about football. That's okay too. I'm still in a different season. I love football, but the season that I'm paying attention to is actually not at the beginning. It's coming to the end because I'm watching baseball. Come on, who's with me? <laughs> that was so bad. Man, baseball, come on. 
I always pay attention to baseball. I'm a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals, but I'm especially watching baseball this year because of the guy on the screen behind me. If you don't know who this is, Albert Pujols, a young man from the Dominican Republic who came over and, uh, to, to take the world by storm as a St. Louis Cardinal. Uh, if you don't know, and this wasn't even in my notes, obviously, because it happened last night. Last night, Albert Pujols tied Alex Rodriguez for number four on the all-time home run list with 696. I'm like geeking out over this. So cool. But what's even cooler and why it should matter to you is there's something really cool about a hero returning home. If you don't know, Albert Pujols spent the first 10 years of his career in St. Louis before going to Southern California to play for the abysmal Anaheim Angels. And He's back for one final season, and he's on a tear, and he's doing great things. And there's just something so right about that, right? There's something right about the return of a hero to the place they belong. This week, I looked up movies that have the, the word return in the title, and I, there are actually a hundred or more. This list had a hundred on it, if you can believe it. I, I made a note of some of the more notable return movies. There's, of course, The Return of the King. The, the third in the Lord of the Rings trilogy when Aragorn returns to reclaim the throne of Gondor and to unite the kingdoms. Okay, that, that's, I'm geeking out again. Um, there's the return of Jafar, which unfortunately was a mostly terrible sequel to the greatest Disney movie of all time. There's a movie most of you aren't going to know. It was called The Return to Snowy River. This was a childhood favorite of mine. And if you ever saw it, you know why. It was a great, great kind of B-rated movie, but good nonetheless. There's the legendary return of the dragon, Bruce Lee, enough said, and then the best and greatest of all the return movies. You know where I'm going. The return of the Jedi. When Luke Skywalker returns to face his nemesis and also his father, Darth Vader, if I spoiled that for you, I'm not sorry. It's 43 years old. You should already know that. The Return of the Jedi. There are storylines in books and movies and TV series that just resonate deeply with the human spirit. And my theory is that, I believe this to be true, that when stories resonate deeply with us, love stories, adventure stories, return stories, the reason is because deep in our human soul, there is a truth that's embedded there. There's something true that's playing out before our eyes. And when we think about great return stories, there is none greater than the true story coming soon to a theater near you, the return of Jesus. And so today we get to spend the next 20 or 25 minutes talking about that day when Christ returns. The story is told of a young evangelist who was called on to, to give a devotional message to children with special needs who lived together in a group home. The director called the young man and said, would you come and bring a five or ten minute word of devotional thought? And this young evangelist thought, man, I'm not real sure where to go. I don't want to get too deep or theological, but I want to give them some hope. And so this young evangelist to a room full of young children with special needs talked about the one day return of Christ. There was very little response and he went on his way. And about six months later, the director called him. He said, hey, our kids loved it when you were here. Would you come back? The man said, sure, I'll come back. But he's thinking to himself, I didn't think I made that much of an impression. As he walks up to that group home, he notices the, the front window of that home is completely smudged and smeared over. You can't even see through to the inside. The director comes out to meet him and they exchange pleasantries and the young evangelist says, hey, not, not, to, not to be rude, but 
doesn't anyone clean this window? Why is it completely smeared and smudged over? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, we clean that window every single day. He said, what happened is since you came and talked to these kids about the return of Jesus, they wake up every morning, press their hands and face against the glass, and look for him. My hope today is that something of that eagerness, something of that anticipation will be true of you as you walk out of here thinking about that day when Jesus is coming back. The early church had a word, actually, that was uh, resonant with them. They said it often, a Greek word, maranatha, and it simply means come, Lord, or come, Lord Jesus. And that first church facing persecution and, and confiscation of property and the loss of loved ones to, to martyrdom, they were constantly living with an eager anticipation of Jesus coming back. Unfortunately, in 21st century America, much of that eagerness has been lost. And I think there's some reasons for it. I'm going to give you just a couple on our way to a greater point. But here's why I think maybe we lack the enthusiasm we might otherwise have. First, it's simply because we have misconceptions about the return of Christ. We just don't really get it. It's like buried in obscure passages of Revelation. And we just go, I don't really understand all that. So I'm just going to kind of set that aside. And it's hard to be excited about something that you don't understand. How many of you were excited about the curling championship at the Winter Olympics this year? Zero of us, right? Like, because sweeping is a chore. I pay my kids to do that. I don't know why people are doing that as a sport. I don't get it. And so if you told me, hey, the curling championship's on, I go, I don't care. It's an issue of the head and the understanding. But I believe there's also a deeper issue, one that we need to examine ourselves for, that's not an issue of the head at all, but rather an issue of the heart. The truth is most people in our world today have idolized the present life. And we'll get everything they can out of it. They're living for here and for now. It's an issue not of the head, but of the heart. This was certainly true of me, especially in my teenage years and as a young adult. There was just a lot that I wanted to do before Jesus came back. Some of you can relate. Like I wanted to get married and have some children and I just wanted to do some things, right? Like I had a list of things I wanted to accomplish and the return of Christ would interrupt that. It would disrupt that. And so I was like, hey, Jesus, I want you to come back one day, but hopefully not anytime soon. Here's what age and a little bit of suffering has done for me. It has begun to wean me off of my addiction to this present world. Because when you're suffering... When you lose loved ones, when you face the things that many of you identified this morning as we prayed together, your clutch on this life, it begins to become, yeah, actually, I'd kind of be okay trading this model in for something better. I can promise you that my grandmother, Ida, who, Grandma, if you're watching, good to see you, 94 years old, she lives every day with the Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. She's got more people in heaven than she has here on earth. She's ready. And so the gift within tribulation and suffering and hardship, and yes, it is hard. And yes, it is right to acknowledge the hardness of it and to bring it before Jesus. But the gift in it is that it loosens our grip and our clutch on what is to make us ready for what will one day be. 
So as we dive more into that, I want to bring back this chart that I showed you last week. I want to just kind of orient you on the timeline of where the return of Christ is, is coming in the story of the end times. Of course, we've got the creation and fall, the earthly ministry, the tribulation, and then Jesus' return somewhere in between that tribulation and the final events that are taking place. We certainly don't know the day or the hour. In fact, Jesus says the Son himself doesn't know the day or the hour, but we know where it's going to fall in the uh, chronology of those end times events. So with that backdrop, I want to read for you, continuing in Matthew chapter 24, read for you the words of Jesus, beginning at verse 26. You can follow along with me. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after that tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens themselves will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all of these things, you know that he is near, even at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. There's a lot more in this chapter, and if you were to let your eyes kind of continue looking, you would see that there are several more verses that still deal with Jesus' coming, but for the sake of time, we're not going to get to that today. I would encourage you later today or, or, or later this week to, to look at those remaining verses in Matthew 24. Today, I want to focus just on those two, and specifically, I want to focus on two elements of Christ's return that I hope, that I believe for some of you, will elicit a greater desire for it, a greater readiness for the return of Jesus. I, I want to, yes, inform you at the head level because I think you need to understand what that looks like. But much more than that, I want to inspire you at the heart level to put all the distractions aside and all the love of this world and say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Before I do that, let me make a quick aside, kind of, a, kind of a footnote, if you will, to the passage. You'll notice that Jesus mentions this thing about the sun and moon going dark and the stars falling out of heaven. I don't know what that is. Some have predicted that that's like a nuclear holocaust that just blackens the entire sky. That could be. It's kind of irrelevant what it is. What I want you to know is this is not some random thing that shows up in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 and you go, man, what in the world? Those very same words, almost verbatim, are predicted by three prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel. All talk about this same phenomenon occurring at the end of time. The sun going dark, the moon going dark, the stars falling out of heaven. And if you were to jump into Revelation chapter 8, you would see that after the fourth trumpet is blown, that's exactly what happens. The sun goes dark, the moon goes dark, the heavens are shaken, the stars fall. Again, I don't know if that's metaphor. I don't know if that's actually what happens. I just know that it's connected as a thread weaving Old Testament 
through the Gospels, through even to the book of Revelation. And my reason for telling you that is quite simply this. When it comes to end times thinking and theology, the the danger is that we kind of put it in a box as something very bizarre and disconnected from everything else. We go, man, this thing about like the locusts and the the beast with the ten horns and the seven, and and it's just like so weird. And yet you'll find some of the same numbers, some of the same concepts, some of the same ideas, not just showing up in Revelation, but actually predicted by the prophets, confirmed by Jesus, and then once again stated as a future event in the book of Revelation. It all works together. That's why it's important to know. So, what are these two elements of Christ's return that we're going to focus on today? Let me give you the first one. You need to know this morning that Christ's return will be visible. Okay, verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, man, everybody's going to see this thing. Now, the elephant in the room here is that, not to beat a dead horse, but like, we were told the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, that's kind of a a secret thing, right? Like it just kind of happens and nobody knows it happened. This, unfortunately, for those of us that grew up in in churches that believe this, like this engenders a great deal of fear and, and turmoil when you come home to an empty house because you're like, man, did I miss the rapture? Did I miss the taking out of all true believers and I'm stuck here? I can remember that happening coming home from baseball practice and everybody in the family was supposed to be there And you're just stuck because you can't Google, did the rapture happen? It's 1998, right? And you can't text anybody because nobody's got a cell phone yet or the people that did had more money than my family. So you're just stuck waiting. And it doesn't help that your baseball buddies dropped you off because they were going to miss the rapture anyway. (laughs) So it's like, you just kind of sit there. You hope the phone rings. You hope the car pulls into the driveway. Well, well, the good news is you won't have to wonder, did this event take place? You're going to know that it happened. Jesus says, as the lightning coming from the east is seen in the west, that's what it'll be like. Let me address a couple of fallacies that we can fall into. We're, we're, we're talking primarily about this, the, the return of Christ but there's an affiliation or a connection with the rapture of the church, okay? So the rapture, Jesus calling Christians out of the world, and then the return, Jesus coming to take his rightful place over the earth and on the earth. These are two things. Here's the fallacies we can fall into. On the one side, some would completely separate these two as completely different and distant events. Like the church gets raptured, And then the world just kind of goes on. And days or months or years pass, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes and shows back up. The problem is then you have two comings, or actually three if you count the first. So so Jesus coming and then leaving and then coming again, but that doesn't seem to me to be what the Scripture is indicating. Now this, if you are a person who believes the rapture of the church happens in the, like before the tribulation, pre-trib, or in the middle of the tribulation, mid-trib, that's going to be your view. And you may be right, but as far as I can tell from reading the, the, the passages in Revelation that deal with it and the words of Jesus, it's a little different than that. Here's the other fallacy. Some will completely dismiss one in favor of the other. Okay? Rapture of the church, return of Christ. Some people's theology is like, man, one day Christians just get like caught up into the sky and the world ends. But if you remember looking at the chart a moment ago, it appears there's a lot more happening after that happens. 
And so the rapture is not the only thing that's occurring. Other people go, man, no, one day, you know, we're just going to be doing our business, and then, then Christ will return, and it's all over. And again, it's like one of those two concepts, the rapture or the return, overshadows the other and almost puts it aside as if it didn't exist. What I want to encourage you to do is to think of these two ideas, the, the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, as one event happening in two stages, okay? And I believe, and I very well could be wrong, this is not a level one, two, or three issue, but I believe those events are happening in pretty close succession to each other, okay? So, so here's a way to think about this. I, I meet every Tuesday with Pastor David Youth, senior pastor at First Orlando, as we kind of grapple with the text that we're each preaching at our campuses. And um, David taught me a word in Greek this week that I had not heard. Uh, he was a much better Greek student than I am. I'm just going to confess that. And so I glean from him, and he taught me this word, parousia. Will you say that with me? Parousia. No, it's not bad. All right. Parousia. Parousia is a word that conveys an idea that was well known in the Roman Empire in the first century. What would happen is the Caesars, the Roman Empire's, uh, emperors, would travel abroad, you know, they would go explore their, their empire, they would have this entourage with them, and then ultimately, eventually, they would return to the city of Rome. But when they got several miles out, they didn't just come with the few in their entourage, they didn't come alone, but a tribunal would be sent to the really important citizens of Rome, the, the senators and, and, and the, the leaders of the city, and they would be called out to join the emperor on the road, and together they would enter the city to cheers and applause. They were called out to join the king as he returned to the city. This, I believe, is what Scripture is getting at when it talks about the calling out of the church and the returning of Christ. We're coming with him, okay? L listen to how Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, then the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, so Jesus is going to say it's like lightning Paul's going to say it's at the sound of the trumpet, so apparently it's not just a visible event, it's also an audible event. It's something you see and hear. Yesterday, Nikki and I were sitting out back, and, and our dog, as dogs are prone to do, went darting into the backyard off his leash. We don't have a fence yet, and we could not get this dog back in the house. Anybody been there, right? Cash, come on. You're doing all this just silly stuff. You hope your neighbors aren't watching, like trying to get him in. And then all of a sudden, behind, directly behind our dog, this bolt of lightning. Remember the storm the other night? This bolt of lightning just poof. But it's, it's visible, but it's not yet audible. That takes about two seconds. And in that two seconds, I had a thought. I'm like, my dog's about to die. Because he, he won't come in. And it's Florida, and there's a lightning storm. And then you know what happened. Two seconds after the visible lightning happened, the thunder came. And dude, our dog, I've never seen our dog run this fast. He bolts. I mean, it was like, good dog, man. Almost knocks me and Nikki over to get into the house. He, we saw it. He didn't. But he heard it. And it drove him inside. 
the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, I believe, together with the return of Christ, is not going to be an event that people are going to scratch their heads and go, well, what happened here? They're going to know. So there's bad news and good news. Uh, you always have to ask, I guess, which do you want first? Yeah, I was already going to tell you anyway, so it doesn't matter. So here's the good news. I'll give you the good news first. You don't have to worry that you ever miss the rapture. You don't need to Google that. You don't need to go, hey, did the rapture happen? You're going to know. Here's the bad news. While the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, while this event will not be a secret event, it will be a sudden event. And so for those who live in a way of saying, God, until you make yourself a visible presence in front of me, I can't believe in you. Unfortunately, that day will come and it will be too late. He will return. He will come back for what is his. Paul refers to this instance as a twinkling of an eye. Jesus says it will happen like a thief in the night. Not silent, not secret, but sudden. Here's the second truth. First, Christ's return will be visible. Secondly, it will be victorious. Look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. I'm dying to know what that sign of the Son of Man is. Like, it doesn't really matter, but maybe it's like a cross in the sky, or, or maybe it's the, the rider on the white horse. We don't know. doesn't really matter. But it says everybody on earth is going to see it, and then notice what's different here about what was true in the first century in Rome. Notice how people respond to the return of the rightful king. They're not applauding. They're not elated. What are they doing? It says they're mourning. They see Jesus come back and they begin to mourn. Why? Because they know who he is. There's no more ambiguity about that. They know who he is. They know what he has come to do. They have at this point persistently and blatantly rejected him to align with the forces of evil. And when Jesus comes, he's coming to set it right. Now again, this is very different than how we often picture Jesus because of his first coming. Zechariah, one of the ancient prophets, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus the first time, said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. And then listen, lowly and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, the first time Jesus came, most people missed it because he kind of snuck in the back door. He comes as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem and then grows up as a woodworker or carpenter in Nazareth. Like, he's not on anybody's radar to the point that they would crucify him. And we know that the prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. First to shouts of Hosanna from a few, then followed by shouts of crucify by many. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to suffer and to die. What's fascinating to me in the timeline of these events is that Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is talking about his second coming, he's just a few days removed from riding into the city on that donkey prophesied by Zechariah. And in just a few more days, he will be turned over, betrayed, mocked, beaten, and crucified on a Roman cross. 
And there, in the very middle of Jesus' humiliation and suffering, he's saying to the disciples, when I come back, I'm not coming on a donkey. I'm not coming to be crucified. I'm coming to rule and to reign. I'm coming with power and great glory. Friends, my belief is that this is the big theme of all of the Bible. 66 books, a lot of different names and characters, a lot to remember. Remember and know this. The Bible shows us from Genesis to Revelation that the heavens and earth are the rightful domain of Jesus, the Son of God. And what the book of Revelation and end times preaching ultimately is doing is saying, this is what it looks like when the hero returns. This is what will happen when our champion reclaims his rightful place over the earth. There's an individual that some folks have asked me to begin listening to, and I've done that, a guy named Michael Heiser. Um, If you don't know Michael Heiser, again, I never recommend anybody as like a just believe everything they say. But in my investigation, there's enough biblical merit to what he's teaching and saying that I would encourage you to read or give it a listen. In fact, uh, Michael Heiser has a podcast called The Naked Bible. He just tries to kind of unpack scripture, and he has a lot of teaching on the afterlife and on end times and revelation. So if you're interested in some kind of additional material, I would encourage you to give that a listen. Michael Heiser has an expression, I'm not sure if it's original to him, but it's often used by him, and he refers to Eden lost. Eden lost, meaning that the garden of Eden that God created for us in Genesis chapter 1, that was destroyed or or, or severely tarnished in Genesis chapter 3, marked a period where now we live in that in-between. We live in a world that has been lost, that's been handed over, that's, that's full of destruction and, and chaos and weeping and death and division. And there will be a day when Eden is finally restored. Can I, can I share with you how crazy it is? We get so consumed with this world, this temporary place in all of history, where Christ has been pushed to the outside, where the God of this age is the enemy of our souls who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But all of human history is like this big (laughs) compared to the eternal reign of Christ before and after this period that we call history. So, So again, what are we living for? What are we getting so consumed with and caught up in? Christ is coming back. He will destroy all that is anti-Eden, and he will restore all that is good and right. Let me offer one word of caution as we talk about this moment of Christ's return, because the reality is that we humans, and maybe we Americans especially, we love to win. We love victory. If you were a fan of Marshall or Appalachian State or the University of Kentucky— Man, you were elated yesterday. They took down the Giants. They overcame. They won. In fact, one team at least did what oftentimes college teams or or fans will do. They stormed the field. They tear down the field goal post. There's thrill in victory. There's even a greater thrill in victory when the victory matters. So I want to address something with you. It's September. We've got an election coming in November, midterms at least. And this is the season often, every two to four years, people start to lose their minds. 
My guy's got to win. My girl's got to get in there. My party, it's all about this. And and here's what I want to tell you. Do not let your longing for the eternal victory of good over evil to be hijacked by the promises of temporal human leaders who at best can bring only temporal human victories. Now, I'm not discouraging engagement in the process. It is is necessary for Christians to use their voice and their vote for things that honor God. Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some of you may even be called to, to give your career to political engagement. Do that and do it with wisdom and integrity and honesty. But friends, we live in a day and an age where politics is encroaching on the church and seeking to overwhelm it. And I want to encourage you to be careful there. A worship artist named John Guerra, a guy that I asked Socrates this week if he knows him, he does, has met him at least. John Guerra wrote a song called Citizens, and I want to read you these lyrics because no matter who your candidate or party is, I think it'll resonate with you. The, the prophetic word that he's speaking to the American church in the lyrics that go like this. There is a wolf who is ranting. All of the sheep, they are clapping, promising power and protection, claiming the Christ who was killed. Killed by a common consensus, everyone screaming Barabbas, trading their God for a hero, forfeiting heaven for Rome. Might I implore you, brothers and sisters, do not make that trade. Do not get your eyes off of the only one who is ultimately good and can bring justice because you're mesmerized with somebody who's tarnished like you are. And again, whoever that is for you, put their name in that place. Do not make that forfeit. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, said, Friends, our citizenship is in heaven, and we await from there a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not get caught up in in false messiahs and temporary uh, heroes when the one we really need and the one we long for is our Savior Jesus. I want to close by asking you two questions, and my hunch is that one or the other, and maybe both, might be a convicting uh, word for you. And if that's true, just, just let the Spirit do His work. Here's the first question. Are you so zealous for the triumph of good on the earth that you've been looking for false messiahs or viewing people that God loves as the enemy? See, one of the collateral damages of getting so caught up in the political process is we begin to look at our our friends, our family, our neighbors, our Facebook friends as the other, the bad guy. And I think Jesus' heart toward those people, he wants to save them. He wants to redeem them. He he wants to pour his love and his grace and his mercy on them. Don't allow yourself to be uh, convinced or or polluted to the point where you other eyes and enemy eyes, people that God loves. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the powers, the authorities of this dark world and this spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Fight your fight in prayer. Use your voice, yes. Use your vote, yes. But let your hope be in Christ and love people that God also loves and made for a purpose. Secondly, are you so infatuated with the pleasures of this life that you've become disinterested or even antagonistic toward the return of Christ? 
To you, I think Paul would say these words in a letter that he wrote, which would be his last, coming to the end of his life where he would be martyred in the city of Rome itself. Writing to the young pastor Timothy, Paul says, And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And that prize is not just for me, but it is for all who long and look forward to his appearing. So do we long for the appearing of Jesus? Do we look forward to that day? Let me close with an illustration. I was leading up to my uh, wedding day, April 24th, 2010. And if you've been married, you know all that goes into planning a wedding. It's a lot. We did it in five months. You got to find the right venue. You got to find the right dress. Or let me rephrase that. You got to find the perfect dress, women, if that's you, right? You got to get the guest list done. You got to figure out what you're going to serve for food. And then the part that I loved the most, that I was most involved with, you got to plan the honeymoon. Man, that was fun. You know why that was so fun, though? It's not just, hey, I get to go on a trip. I, I get to fly and go to this beautiful place. What was beautiful about planning the honeymoon was that was the time I got to take my bride. And we got to just get away together. And we got to just enjoy each other without distractions, without to-do lists, without busyness or chaos, just me and her day after day enjoying each other. Did you know that when the scripture talks about the church, it very often refers to her as the bride of Christ? Which means that when Jesus looks at you, individual, and more so when Jesus looks at us, local church, he doesn't see merely our squabbles, our, our, our imperfections, the, the sins we've committed earlier in the week and repented of. Jesus does not see that. What Jesus sees is a bride that he cannot wait to come for, that he can't wait to return for and to receive as his own. We're going to close with a song that's called, Even So, Come. And this song is really a modern way of saying that ancient Greek phrase, Maranatha, come Jesus. I want you to know that the first time I heard this song we're about to sing was the first time that it was ever played publicly at the Passion Conference in Atlanta about 10 years ago, a room full of about 20,000 young adults because I was in that category 10 years ago. The old Georgia Dome, it's not there anymore. But we were introduced this song. It had never been played on the radio. It had never been put on an album yet. And on a stage, Christian Stanfill and Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman and I think Carrie Job was there that year as well. They said, we want to introduce a song to you. And as we sang these words, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. I'll be really transparent and honest with you. At like 28, 30 years old, whatever it was, I'm like, is this, is this happening? Like, is Jesus just going to come back right now? Like, that's what it felt like. That he was just going to pull back the roof of the Georgia Dome and go, I'm here. It was as if we were calling him out of heaven saying, Jesus, it's time. Come get us. We're ready. Now here's the reality. We don't have 20,000 people in this room, but we don't need it. I want to ask you to sing this song, not just with your words, but with your whole heart. Taking whatever is heavy on you, whatever loss and grief you've experienced, whatever is distracting you, weighing you down, 
and just coming before the altar to say, Jesus, we're ready. It's time. Your bride is ready for you to come. And would you sing in that way? Friends, stand with me. Father in heaven, we pray that right now in the name of Jesus, that you would begin to shake the heavens, God. And that you would make us ready as a church to receive you as your bride. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We pray it in the almighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.